Let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table. First Corinthians chapter 11 is the foundational passage in the whole Bible dealing with the Lord's Supper. If you want to look at the foundational chapter in the Bible about love, you go to 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to see foundational chapters like about marriage, it would be Ephesians chapter 5. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, at least the second half of it, is the foundational chapter about the Lord's Supper. So I invite you to follow along. Uh, beginning in verse 17. We're on page 958 in those Bibles in the pews if you'd like to follow along. I'll read beginning in verse 17. Hear God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, one goes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. One of the aspects of the church which ties us together with our past is the Lord's Supper. Some call it communion uh, or holy communion. Uh, That emphasizes the fact that when we eat the bread and drink of the cup, we share together the benefits and the significance of the death of Jesus. Some call it the Eucharist, which is a word which means thanksgiving. As I mentioned, this is the definitive text in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper. And it begins with a rebuke In verses 17 through 22, see, it was customary in the early church that the believers would would gather, they would come together, that means they would assemble uh, for an ordinary meal called a love feast. Then they would attach to that 
the observance of the Lord's Supper. But in the church in the city of Corinth, there was division uh, and dissension that existed among this group of believers. And that division was showing up in how they observed the Lord's Supper. Instead of sharing with one another, some would eat before the others would eat. The rich could come and bring plenty of food, and they would not share it with those who had little So in other words, somebody might show up with a steak and somebody else had nothing. This was not showing forth the oneness that we should have in Christ. And some were actually getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, which poses a problem for those that teach that all the wine in the New Testament was non-alcoholic. Okay. Then, after verses 17 to 22, which begins with a rebuke, Uh, He gives instruction in verses 23 through 26, and he recalls the original institution of the Lord's Supper by Jesus. And although Paul had not been there, this was years before his own conversion, he says that God had given him direct instruction. He had received his instructions from the Lord. Then in verses 27 through the end of the chapter, he gives training as to how properly to observe the Lord's Supper. So just a few things to remember in preparation. This is a message that's preparing us to come to the Lord's Supper, so I'll try and stress application. We should always remember this is a covenant meal. A covenant in the Bible and in ancient days was a contractual agreement. It was a solemn promise. It was confirmed by an oath or a sign. And so the sovereign would sign and seal, often with a royal ring, Uh, this covenant which initiated a relationship. And then periodically there would be another sign and seal given to renew that covenant agreement. Usually that was a meal that would take place, even annually. In the Old Testament, the covenant meal was called Passover. Every year, God's people would sit down and they would recite what their covenant-keeping God had done and what he had called them to do, and they would dedicate or consecrate themselves afresh to do that in their commitment, their relationship with their covenant-keeping God. Now, both of the Old Testament signs, circumcision and Passover, looked ahead. They anticipated what the Lord would ultimately do. Now, as believers, we look back at what he's done. We feel We understand he fulfilled what he planned to do, what he foreshadowed to do through Passover and circumcision. He fulfilled that in Christ. And so we no longer practice circumcision as a spiritual sign because he has circumcised our hearts and by his Holy Spirit he gives us a new heart and a new spirit to his people. We do not observe the Passover anymore as Christians because we believe that was fulfilled in Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now, in light of what Christ has done, he has given us two signs, two seals, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So baptism has replaced circumcision, and baptism can be confusing to people because it's practiced in different ways, the modes of baptism in different churches. But here's one thing, if you get this, it will, it will keep you out of the ditch. Baptism is the sacrament of initiation. If you remember that, you've got it. You're 90% there. It's the sacrament of initiation into the covenant community. I'll compare it to marriage. Barbara and I, my wife, when we were married, we had a wedding. And at that time, I uh, 
took vows, a covenant vows we took for, uh, uh, to keep this covenant of marriage. And, but a year later, a year after that, I realized, you know, I love her and I'm more committed to her now. I thought I was when I said those things, but now I realize I really am. So I did not go to her and say, let's have another wedding. Because I think I want to rededicate myself to what was a year ago. I didn't quite understand. Or then five years later, say, you know, I just, I know you so much better now and I understand this covenant so much better. Let's have another wedding. Why am I saying this? It's not unusual for me to meet college students today that have been baptized one, two, three, four, five times. So why are you baptized so many times? Well, I thought I was a Christian back then, but now I realize I really wasn't. Or I thought I was committed to the Lord, and now I've really deepened that commitment, so I wanted to be rebaptized. That would be my, me like saying, you know, I thought I loved you last week, but I really love you more this week. Let's have our 10th wedding, or 12th wedding, or 15th. There's no need. I'm not trying to be silly, but there's no need to do that. But there is a need for rededication. The, the, the sign of initiation only be, needs to be administered once into the covenant community. But there needs to be a sign of rededication. Guess what that is? This. That's what the Lord's Supper is. That's why he gave it to us. And so this is the sacrament, you might say, of rededication. Don't we need periodically to recommit ourselves, rededicate ourselves to Christ? Do you not find that your relationship with Christ, if you've been a, a true follower of Christ, a believer in him uh, for years, that that commitment ebbs and flows, it waxes and wanes, and there's needs to recommit myself and rededicate myself? Don't you feel that? I do, on a regular basis. Well, this is what God has provided, one way of covenant renewal. He's instituted his supper, his table, for this purpose. Now, there are two other observations here in the passage, just very briefly. One is the phrase that's used at least five times, when you come together, when you come together. Uh, he's talking about the corporate gathering of believers on the first day of the week. Uh, the, the Christian Sabbath, the Christian's Lord's Day, when they would gather, when they would assemble. Uh, that, that's what he's referring to. We understand that then, that the Lord's Supper should be administered in a corporate setting, not privately. Now, we administer the Lord's Supper privately in cases of necessity, like when someone's in a hospital and they say, I, I was not able to attend worship, would you, and would you bring the Lord's Supper here? And so, like, after, it should be this week, after we have the Lord's Supper here, that during the week, those that were not able to join us that are incapacitated in some way or unable to attend, we would take the Lord's Supper to them. We have elders that do that. But this is a warning against those, and I don't know if anyone here does this, but I hear of this too, that they will have the Lord's Supper in their home just with their family. Uh, there's no precedent in church history for doing that, and there's, there's not any biblically. So it's to be administered, it's to be administered corporately with the church. The second observation, he says in verse 17, you come together to take for the better or for the worse. For the better or for the worse. That means you will not be the same when you leave here as when you walked in. Either you walk away better equipped to serve, more dedicated to Christ, or worse, eating and drinking judgment to yourself in verse 29. There is no neutral ground in relationship to partaking the Lord's Supper. So let's look at a few key issues as for the next few moments before we come to the Lord's table. It's to be a time of celebration. Yes, we come reverently as we reflect on the agony and the death of Christ for sin, but join with that reverence as a celebration. We celebrate the gospel. We celebrate grace today. 
that we commemorate the Lord's death until when? When did he say to stop doing this? When he comes again. Which that tells us that if he's coming again, that means he's not still in the grave. So he was resurrected, and we celebrate that this is just a prelude. This is an appetizer, for lack of a better term, of the great marriage feast that will take place with the Lamb in heaven. So we celebrate the gospel, we celebrate Christ, we celebrate the anticipation of being with him. We also celebrate redemption, the payment that Christ made, that as we come to the Lord's table, we recognize that his payment for sin was a full atonement. It bore all sins. You cannot add anything to Christ's work. It fully satisfied the Father. It's not 90% Christ's work and 10% your work. It's full. You cannot add to it. It's final. It's finished. It cannot be undone. Nothing else can be added to it. God is through with the work of redemption as far as accomplishing that work of atonement. The only thing left to do is for him to come and to bring it to, to consummation. It's free. We can't buy it. We can't merit it. We can't make it anything more than it is now. It is given freely to us. He didn't see potential in you and me. He didn't see uh, uh, what we bring to the table. We were helpless, Romans says, and Christ died for us. So I want you to know this as we come to the Lord's table. We don't add to the work of Christ. We just receive what he has done. So we come in a time of celebration, but it's also a time of strengthening. That our understanding of what the Bible teaches is that as we partake of this in faith, in, in, that we are strengthened in our faith in him. We are strengthened in our walk with him. John Calvin said that the purpose, that the purpose of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are like pillars of a building. That here you have this large building and you have a foundation. The building is built on the foundation, and then the pillars may be added to give it strength, but they are not what the building is built on. He was saying our foundation is the work of Christ, but baptism and the Lord's Supper give it strength. They strengthen that foundation that is already there. So it's a time of strengthening. It also is a time of rededication, as I mentioned earlier. If you've been redeemed, if you have trusted Christ as your substitute that he that he died on the cross in your place, a death that you deserve because of sin that we all deserve, then we are to consecrate ourselves to him. We are to rededicate ourselves to him. That involves, it can be looked at as rededicating myself to exalting God, of loving God, of worshiping God. Uh, Worship is not designed to bless people, but to bless God. That's what Romans 12 says. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, It's rededicating ourselves to the ministry of loving others, of encouraging other people. Uh, So let me ask you a question that I ask myself, and I was asking myself right before this service. Does anybody know the Lord any better today because of my relationship with them the past week? Do you and I just live off other people, or do we contribute? Uh, Are we parasites or contributors? We all need supportive fellowship. I'm not trying to make it sound like we're isolated. But do we look for opportunities to encourage others? Could someone come to you today and say, I want to thank you for how Christ has used you in my life to encourage me in the Lord? So in a sense, it's rededication to that as well, to exalting God in worship, to edifying others and encouraging them. 
Uh, Are we helping others finish the race that we are running? And then it's the ministry of evangelism, trying to tell others about Christ. I mentioned to you that I was uh, taking an online class with Robbie Zacharias with 159 other people worldwide. And this past week, watching some of the video uh, lessons, uh, one was we talk a lot where I listen a lot about atheism and worldviews, that everyone has a worldview, and all worldviews have to address four issues. Origin, how we got here. Uh, purpose, does life have meaning, or is it meaningless? Uh, morality, is there truly inherently good and evil things in the world? And fourth, destiny, where do we go after we die? The assignment was to interview someone this week of a different worldview, which I did. And so I, I met with a person, and, and I asked, I said, look, I, I am to appreciate, appreciate your help with me on this assignment. I am not only to record, you know, write down your worldview, I'm to defend it. Uh, so the worldview, the origin was we all just come from atoms that were, have always been. The meaning, there is no meaning to life, that human life is only different from animal life and that we are dominant. There is no inherent good and evil. That's totally circumstantial. And fourth, when we die, those atoms return to nothing, you know, just like that. And then the question was, where did you gain this worldview? Was it from the family or from your own reading? In this case, it was from the person's own reading. What I was moved by is that, to me, it was an academic exercise. And I tend to look at things like that as an opportunity to uh, challenge a person's thinking. But when I thought back last Saturday when I was watching Robbie Zacharias give this lecture, he almost had to pause even on video because he was so moved for his compassion for atheists. He was burdened because he realized this, there's destiny here and to be wrong in this thing is to be terribly wrong. It has eternal consequences. But did not sense that same compassion and empathy that I saw in my elder brother, Rabbi Zacharias. So, what's the point? The point is we come to the Lord's table, it's, pro- it's a proper time of reflection. There is such a thing as morbid introspection where we're just always self-focused. That's not what this is, but there's a periodic when we should look at our hearts and say, am I, what am I trusting in? What am I worshiping? How am I treating other people? This is the proper time to do that. So it's the, uh, a time of self-evaluation. It's also a time of, of judgment. Five times in this passage, uh, just in verses 29 through 34, the word judgment is used. We normally don't think this way. The Lord's Supper is a visual aid in that it demonstrates the wrath of God and the forgiveness through the cross of Christ. Christ died. His blood was spilled. It was horrific. And that's represented there with bread and wine. And so the Lord's Supper mirrors Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, There's a reality of judgment. When he says here in the passage, and this is somewhat alarming, this is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Were you paying attention when we read that? There in the passage, he is saying in the church at Corinth, the ancient church at Corinth, there were people who were weak and sickly, and some, he says many, had died by not properly partaking of the Lord's Supper. This sounds like science fiction, but it's reality. What does it mean many are weak? Probably means weak physically, but some think it could also mean a weak spiritual state. Could it be that the way God has judged us that have 
not partaken in a right manner is not so much with physical weakness, but maybe just a weak spiritual state? Could it be that our inability to go very far in God's Word or to trust Him with knowledge and insight and confidence and to know Him in an intimate way could be because of the way that we have not partaken correctly of the Lord's Supper? And in so doing, in a sense, we've, we've eaten and drank judgment to ourselves? Paul writes, many of you are sick. Illness or disease had broken out. Some had died. Well, what's the purpose of such judgment? I don't know all the reasons, but they do include judgment or chastening in the Bible is to protect us and to provide for us. And he does that through various levels of discipline. For example, briefly, in the last couple of moments, there's internal chastening. When you are convicted about something, when the Holy Spirit, in a sense, puts his finger on some area of your life, then you can receive that as, Lord, I think you are, this is according to Scripture, and this is accurate, and this just isn't me feeling this. You are convicting me of this, and I need to repent of this. That's internal chastening. Hopefully it goes no further. Nobody else may even know about it. But then there's external chastening. That's when we're disciplined outwardly. Some of you are weak, he says. Some are sick. Jonah ran from God and was disciplined externally. And then there's terminal chastening. A number of you have fallen asleep. That's to have your life taken away. Now, the prevention of such, he says in verse 28, if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. What does it mean to answer, to judge yourself? That, that's back in, in, in verse 28. I commit myself to healthy self-examination. If I'm examining my own self, then I don't need the external chastening of God to do that. So what type of examination as we come to the end? Examine your relationship with God. Do you really know Christ today? Have you truly repented of your sin and turned to him in full faith that what he did when he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross was for you? Do you realize the meaning of these elements, that the bread represents his active obedience to fulfill God's law? And as I eat this, I am by faith saying that his perfect record is credited to me, that the blood represents, the, the wine represents his blood that was shed, that my sin deserved punishment, and God must punish it, but he became my substitute. He took that for me, and as I drink this, I'm trusting that by faith. Is my relationship with God healthy? Do I have other gods in my life? Am I pursuing holiness? Am I resisting temptation and putting sin to death? Am I growing in the means of grace? Examine your relationship with others, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your acquaintances, with people in the church, with people outside the church. Do I have unresolved conflict with another person? And if so, is it in my power to resolve that conflict? What steps can I take to do so? Do I have attitudes of hatred in my heart toward others? Have I said something unkind and hurtful to another person, which I should confess? Have I lied to another person to whom I can confess? Do I have a Christian friend who loves me enough and knows me enough that they can caution me about a dangerous relationship or activity in my life? I could go on and on for pages. But last of all, this is a time of joyful anticipation. We come anticipating the coming of Christ. The meal is to be a reminder that he will come again. It is a foreshadowing of the great marriage supper and that will take place with the Lamb. He is the hope that satisfied, that our Lord will reign forever. And when he comes, will he find us faithful? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this table, these simple elements that show forth your great plan and your work of redemption.
Uh, may we draw near now in faith, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.